much, Hugh, but um, I found myself this week kind of um, obsessed with the news going on in the Middle East and in Israel, and um, just really laid on my heart early this morning um, to be reminded, and, and, and by nature to remind all of you that everything is, is in subjection to God, that He is still on the throne, that He is still in control. I think the things that we read right now can lead to lots of fear. Lots of anxiety, lots of worry. So I'm just going to encourage you from Hebrews chapter 2 and then, and then just kind of pray back the scripture to the Lord. It says, Hebrews 2 says, It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, and has been testified. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. But at present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of his death, so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, thankful for your word, just how eternal and timeless it is, how it always accomplishes the work in which you intend it, how it's always going to bear fruit. Lord, I pray that the truth of this word would bear fruits in the cognitive minds of, of the people gathered here this morning. Um, God, I'm burdened um, by the devastation and the horrors that war is bringing about. Uh, I'm fearful, just to be honest, and, and anxious as to what this may mean on a global scale, and fearful of what this may mean for your church. But reminded this morning, God, that everything is in subjection to you. That the heavens are your throne. The earth is merely your footstool. You're not anxious. You're not pacing. You're seated on your throne. It is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion of this earth. And I pray, God, you would allow us to just see you, as this scripture says. We don't see everything in subjection to you, but I pray today we would see you. But you get a glimpse of who your son Jesus Christ is. So we can walk this week, um, not with worry, not with fear, but in faith and in rest. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Hey, we still got some room up here in the spit zone. Um, I don't think we have any more room in our second through fifth grade class. Lots of kids in there. Um, but if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, today's text is actually going to be mostly in Nehemiah chapter 10, but I think it's going to be really prudent of us to kind of pick up where we left off last week. And hey, if you're new with us, this is kind of what we do. We, we, we pick a book of the Bible, we sense that God's leading us to, and for this case, it was been Ezra and Nehemiah over the last, the last several months. Um, so we preached Ezra chapter nine, I mean, Nehemiah chapter 9 last week. We're picking up right where we left off in Nehemiah chapter 10 this week. Um, so as you turn there, let me ask you a question, and this is not rhetorical, so you can raise your hand. How many of you have ever heard the name Jocko Willink? Yeah, four of you. All right, so for those who are not familiar with Jocko Willink, okay, he, he's an author, podcaster, and retired lieutenant commander with the Navy SEALs. And since he's retired from the Navy SEALs, he's made a fortune uh, with a consulting business where he takes military principles and applies them to either business or leadership. And, and it's, it's pretty incredible because he's no nonsense. His tone and his tenor of life is just no nonsense. Um, so you can read his books, you can listen to his podcasts. Um, you can also follow him on Twitter or X, you know, whatever we call that social media platform today. And yes, I do have a Twitter, okay? I'm going to go ahead and put my cards on the table. 
Haven't tweeted since 2007. <laughs> but I have a Twitter. And I follow Jocko, Jocko and it's hilarious, okay? Because people will tweet at him. I think that's how you say that verb. You know, they'll, they'll ask personal advice from Jocko Willen, this, this consultant for business and leadership. And they'll ask him all this advice. And, y'all, his responses are hysterical because they're in direct alignment with who he is. It's just, just no nonsense. So people will say, you know, I want to lose weight, but I, I just can't stop eating sweets. What do I do? And he'll say, don't put them in your mouth. You know? or, or somebody will say, I want to start getting up earlier in the morning. I want to be more disciplined. How do I do it? And he goes, you set your alarm. When it goes off, you get up. You know? and, and we laugh because that's hysterical, but it's, like, and it tr- it's true, isn't it? I mean, it's, like, it's not very profound. It just requires this word that we don't like called responsibility. Right, because what those questions are asking is actually not for advice. They're, they're asking for a quick fix. Some, some kind of a microwaved mentality of like, I want some results. I just don't want responsibility. Right? Isn't that true for most of how we live our life, for all of us? We, we want results, but we don't want to take personal responsibility. But, but Jocko, he's not about that life. He's all about personal responsibility. In fact, his most famous book that he wrote is called uh, Extreme Ownership. It's a book called Extreme Ownership. And he, he coined this phrase of extreme ownership and defines it this way. He says, extreme ownership means that you're not going to blame anyone or anything else when something goes wrong. You're going to take personal responsibility. You're going to take ownership. And I'm going to try to avoid this rabbit trail. But man, talk about a countercultural way of living today. Right? What is our gut reaction to problems in our life? Blame shifting, excusing. It's every, it was their fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's, some, it's everybody else. I'm not going to own it. I'm not going to take extreme ownership. But according to Jocko, and I think according to our text today, we're actually going to see that, that the path to flourishing church is actually going to be found in some ownership. It's going to be found in some responsibility that we all need to take as it regards our relationship to God. So let me kind of recap where we were last week. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9, but um, in Nehemiah chapter 9, the people of Israel, you'll see in verse 37, are in great distress. That word means agony. It means affliction. It means misery. They're miserable. And the reason that they're miserable is because for the first time in hundreds of years, they have heard the word of God. So in Nehemiah chapter 8, three separate times, the people of Israel hear the word of God read, they hear the word of God preached, and the word of God is giving them an accurate picture of God, which I said last week is the primary purpose of scripture, to tell us who God is. And they see how great God is. They see how high and exhausted God is. And consequently, they begin to see how miserable they are, how wicked they are, how rebellious and rejecting of God they are. So there's this disparity that comes into play in Nehemiah chapter 9. God is great and magnificent, and we are not. There's this gap that exists. But church, the people of our text, the people of Israel, Nehemiah chapter 9 at least, they, they don't blame that on God. They don't, they don't blame their current situation on the kings of Persia. They don't blame it on anybody else surrounding them, their, their neighbors. They take responsibility for their current situation. And that's what I want us to see here is how do they take extreme ownership? And we're going to begin by reading verse 33 of Nehemiah chapter 9, because that's really where our first point is going to be found. So I'm going to read verse 33 all the way down to verse 37. It says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and yet we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. 
even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. And behold, we are slaves to this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us. Here's it, here it is, guys. Because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. The church, here's the disparity. You say, God, you have been righteous. We have been wicked. God, you have been good. Yet in spite of your goodness, we have continued to reject you. And they see, really for the first time, that their current circumstances, which is indentured servitude, right? God has miraculously stirred the people of Israel to return to the land of Israel. But even in the land of Israel, they're not free. They're still in subjection to the kings of Persia. And they said, the land, our yield, everything that we're growing has to go to them. It doesn't go to us. We're still slaves, even in the midst of our land. But they don't go, gosh, God, why'd you do this to us? Right? They don't go, oh, Persia's just terrible. No, instead, they go, this is because of us. It's because of our sins. They take extreme ownership. And here's point number one for us, y'all. You want to take extreme ownership of your relationship with God? You've you got to start confessing sin. That's how we do it. We, we own parts of our relationship with God through the confession of our sins. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, commands us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. He actually says to test yourself. When's the last time any of us did that, right? But listen, one of the primary ways that we can actually examine ourselves, to actually see, am I, a believer? am I actually a believer? Am I actually in the kingdom of God? One of the primary ways we can test that is to evaluate how you handle the sin in your life. How do you handle the sin in your life? Because, right, a, a Christian isn't any different from the world in the fact that we're going to sin. For some of you who just walked into a church for the first time today, welcome. You thought you got away from all the sinners. You're surrounded by them. Right, what makes us different is not whether we sin or not. We're, we're going to slip up. We're going to stumble. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall short. Hopefully, it's not habitual. Right? Hopefully, there's not a pattern of sin in a believer's life. But a believer is going to slip, uh, slip up and going to stumble. So the question isn't whether a Christian is going to be perfect that makes them prove they're a Christian. That's not the test. The test is what do you do when you slip up? When you stumble, when you begin to realize there's sin in your life, how do you respond to that? That is a test of a true believer. And church, the way we need to respond is, is by owning it. But when it comes to the confession of sin, I need to make a little bit of a delineation. I, I was thinking, I was like deep in my own headspace this week, so hopefully I can communicate this. There's an old preacher saying, if it's foggy in the pulpit, it's going to be cloudy in the pews. So I wrestled hard with this concept this week, so hopefully it comes out clear, Okay. But I read in Scripture, especially Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4, that we are, as believers in Christ, we are forgiven in Christ. Right? We are positionally forgiven. That's what we're going to call it. Positionally forgiven in Christ. Everybody else agree with that? We've read that. That in Christ, we are forgiven. So here's where my logic went. If I am standing forgiven in Christ, when God looks at me and he goes, you are forgiven in Christ, why, if I'm a believer, do I need to continue to practice the confession of sin? All right, you following my logic? Anybody else want to enter in that dark headspace of mine? Okay. I mean, God, you say that I'm forgiven. Then, then why do I need to constantly confess the sin in my life? If I'm already forgiven, what's the point of confession? And I got deep in study and realized that really there's, there's two facets to forgiveness. Okay? 
The first is positional forgiveness. You are forgiven in Christ by a work of His grace, not a work of your confession. I don't care how many Hail Marys you've done or how many confessions you've made. Nothing that you can do can earn your position as forgiven in Christ. It's by grace alone through faith alone. Okay, That is our position in Christ. But, church, what's true is that He saved you for relationship. You have been redeemed, you have been restored, you have been reconciled to him through that salvation so that you can live in a relationship with him. And you know what hinders relationship with God? Sin. So there's another need that we have when it comes to confession, when it comes to forgiveness, and it's called relational forgiveness. We hinder our relationship with God when we live contrary to who he wants us to be and what he wants us to do. And it creates disconnect and and disjointedness. Have you ever as a believer thought, I just feel so distant from God? Or actually, probably what you say, because we're all blame shifters, is God feels so distant from me. Well, what probably has happened is you've let sin creep into your life and has created a disconnect between your relationship. Now, your position is eternally secure. Right? Your sin hasn't changed your position, but it has impacted your relationship. Right? Are you following me? Let me illustrate this. I have four kids. Three sons, one daughter. I'll call her my favorite daughter, okay? Let me take my favorite daughter who I think is sinless, but I know that's blasphemy, so I can't say that, okay? But let me take my daughter. I'm her father. She's my daughter. There is nothing that she can do to ever change the fact that she is my daughter, right? There's no goods. There's no righteous good deeds. There's no perfect behavior that she can do that makes her more my daughter. And equally, there's nothing wrong that she can do, no sin that she can perform to make her less my daughter. Are you with me? She is always going to be positionally my daughter. Why? Because of her? No, because of my unfailing love for her. Okay? Positionally, she is my daughter. But the truth of the matter is, when she rejects what I have for her, and she disagrees or disobeys and, and, and disrespects what I have asked of her, it creates a tension in relationship, doesn't it? Parents, can I get any amen? Yeah, it creates a disconnect. There, there's, a, there's a gap that begins to grow in that relationship. Has it changed that position? By no means. But has it impacted the intimacy of that relationship? For sure. And that's really what it looks like in our time with Christ. God has positioned us in Christ by His grace so that, that you can have a relationship is possible solely because of Him. But the strength and the growth of that relationship is something that you and I have got to take some extreme ownership over. We've got to begin to look at our lives and go, Lord, is there sin that has hindered my relationship with you? Is there something that we have done, that I have done, that has come between who you are and who I am? Am I actually adding to the disparity between you and me, or am I trying to move towards you with the confession of my sin? Okay. And that's what the, church, the people of Israel did today. They took extreme ownership of their relationship with God by taking confession of their sin. And church, I just want to remind you, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you of, our, of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We saw this last week, that one of the primary characteristics of God is He's a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love, right? So we end up hiding and, and sweeping away our sin, but we have to remember who He is. He's not going to smite you for your sin. He's going to forgive you for your sin because he smote Jesus for your sin. Okay, and I'm going to get there in a second. Getting a little ahead of myself. Smote's not a word, is it? My English majors, you know what I'm saying. Let's keep going in verse 38. They take extreme ownership with the confession of their sin, but they also take extreme ownership in the recommitment to the covenant. That's point number two, recommitment of the covenant. Verse 38. 
And because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document, which are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. All right, so here's what they do. They go, we own this. This is because of us, but we're not going to just stay there. We're actually going to recommit our relationship to you, and we're going to do it in writing. We're going to write down what we're committing, and we're going to seal it up, and we're actually going to have all of our leaders sign it. So, so show that they mean business, that we want to recommit to God. They're going to, write, they're going to seal it and put names on it. And what follows in the next 26 verses of chapter 10 is a list of those names. And Lord, have mercy on all of you as I attempt to read this, okay? It, it begins with the, the leader, Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Then it moves to the priests in verse 1 through 8. Zedekiah. Zariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pasher, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Majamin, Maziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. These are the priests. Then it moves to the Levites. And the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benui of the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalaita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rehob, Hashbiah, Zachar, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, and Beninu. Then it concludes with the rest of the leaders, the officials. It says, the, chief pre, the chiefs of the people. Parash, Path Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Aden, Atar, Hezekiah, Azar, Hodiah, Hashem, Bazai, Harif, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpash, Meshulam, Hezer, Meshbel, Zaduk, Jadua, Palathiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Haloesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashban, Messiah, Ahiah, Hanan, and Anon. Cool. Okay, I'm going to take a break. I spent all day yelling at U10 soccer players, so my voice is hurting right now. And I know what you're thinking. Wow, you did great. That was amazing. But let me just put all the cards on the table and tell you exactly what's going on here, okay? So Coleman and I, when we read names like this, assume that you have no idea how to say these names. So all we do is say them as confidently as possible, and you think that it's amazing. Okay? But listen, in all seriousness, the reading of these names is important because the listing of these names is important because what they're saying is we mean business. God, we own our sin, and here's the people, here's the people that's going to put their name down that we are going to live in light of a renewed commitment to you. So we own it, and we renew our commitment. And what follows in the next two verses is actually the, the, the Cliff Notes version of what they're re recommitting to. Okay, it's a summary. And the remainder of the text is going to be the details. But let's look at the summary in verse 28 and 29. It says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord with his rules and with his statutes. So again, we're going to look a little bit more detail here in just a second, but, but here's the Cliff Notes version, and there's a couple things I want to highlight. First is, this is a recommitment of all the people. Right? It's, it's not just the leaders. The leaders were a representation of the people when they put their names on this seal and on this covenant. But this is all the people. It says all. And actually what it says is all who have, what, separated themselves. That's verse 28. If you're someone that likes to write in your Bible, you can circle that word separated. 
separated themselves. All throughout scripture, we see this calling and this command to be separate, to separate yourselves. And to be separate from something is a call to holiness. It's a, always, this is what it means. It's a call to separate from something. And it's always a call to separate to something, okay? To be distinct, to remove yourself from something and to move towards something else. So let's look at our text. What did they separate from? Verse 28, to separate themselves from the people's of the lands. In their case, they separate from their neighbors, from the peoples of their lands. And, and y'all, it's important to remember, we discussed this in Acts, we've talked about this in the book of Ezra. This is not about religious preservation. I mean, it's not about ethnic preservation. This is not about we want to be separate because we are, we are a particular type of ethnic people. No, no, they want to be separate morally, separate religiously. They want to be distinct in their worship of God and God alone not to be like the world around them that worships all these other gods. They were to be separate in their religious or their worship's affiliation. So the book of Moses is clear. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 23 reads this. You shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am going to give you in the land. So God, knowing I'm going to give you this land of Canaan, and there's going to be, he said, there's going to be neighbors around you, people surrounding you who don't worship me, who don't live the way that I want you to live, who don't practice the things that I'm asking you to practice, they're going to have a morality that actually doesn't flow well with who I'm going to call you to be. So you're going to be surrounded by these nations, so you need to be separate from them. So they separated from the nations around them. But what do they separate to? Again, verse 28, to the law of God. And they spell it out a little bit more in detail in verse 29. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God. And to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord with his rules and his statutes. They even throw in there one of the, one of the parts about a curse and an oath. So if you read that, you're like, what does that mean? It means that in the book of Deuteronomy, when God gave Moses the law, he says, if the people follow what I'm asking them to do, I'm going to bless them. There are blessings for obedience. There are blessings for obedience, but there's some severe discipline for disobedience. This is what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah has really been about, right? Why were the Israelites exiled and deported to the kingdom of Babylon to begin with? Because they would not follow God. They would not worship. They didn't honor what he had asked them to do. There is severe discipline and consequences when we walk contrary to what God has called of us. That's what it means by the, er, the, the, er, the uh, oath and the cursing. So that's the content of their commitment. Here's what you need to do. You need to take extreme ownership of our relationship by recommitting, separating yourselves from, and separating yourselves to. So what does that mean for us? Right, as New Testament followers of Jesus, as believers in Christ, are we still called to live separate? Are we still asked of God to live in a distinct fashion? Yes. We are to be holy just as our God is holy. And this is what it means. All throughout the New Testament, we see that we are called to be separate from worldly living. To be separate from worldly living. And I'm emphasizing that because I did not say be separate from what? The world. That's impossible. That's not what we're called to. We have seen this over and over. We are not called to be world avoiders. We're called to be world witnesses. That God has actually strategically placed us in this world to live in such a way that is not of this world so that people can see a different world. 
So people can see the kingdom and the ethics of our God, not the kingdom and the ethics of this world. So we're actually strategically placed to be light, to be salt, to be in this world, just not of it. But yet, so many Christians or people who call themselves Christians live in ways that accommodates the morality of the world. Y'all, it can't happen. If you want to follow Jesus Christ, you are going to have to count some costs and live in a way that doesn't accommodate worldly living. Worldly living. James chapter 4 says, if you want to be a friend to the world, you know what that means? You're an enemy of God. That's James 4, 4. I didn't hear any gray there. Right? There's, there's black and white. Like We can't continue to live in ways that are worldly and expect to receive the flourishing of walking in God's distinct nature. We're called to be holy, y'all. We have to remember our citizenship as believers in Jesus is in heaven. That's Philippians 3, verse 20. Hebrews 13 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek that is to come. But listen, as we wait for our heavenly citizenship to be realized, we've got a job to do. We've got work to do to be in this world, but to live in a way that is according to another, so that when people see your life, they go, there's something different. And I, and I want it. It's time for us to live distinct again, church. Y'all tired of me saying that? Come back Sunday, you'll hear it again. It's time. We can't continue to assimilate to the world. No, I'm not talking about us puffing out our chest and living in such a way, condemning everybody else around us. No, no, no. With grace and with humility, being so in love with Jesus that you do not want to be in love with this world. It's an affections thing. It's not a behavioral thing. I'll say that again, okay? It's an affections thing. When you start falling more and more in love with Jesus, you'll stop wanting to fall more and more in love with the world. Your affections change, and consequently, your behaviors change. We don't change our behaviors in order to change our affections. Our affections always lead to a change in behavior. Cannot be friends with this world. We have to be separate from it. So what does worldly living look like? I I don't have time to preach that, but Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes it pretty clear. I'm just going to read what he says in Galatians chapter 5. The works of the world are, are pretty evident. It says that they're... Sexual immorality, lust, anger, division, strife, hatred, jealousy, drunkenness, envy, things like these. That's what Paul says. He says, for those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, hang on a second. You got drunk. Does that mean I just lost my salvation? No. Your position in Christ is eternally secure. Earned by Christ, not by you, but what it may mean is if you're okay with getting drunk, it may mean you're not in the kingdom to begin with. That's sober, isn't it? It may mean you need to evaluate and test yourself because if my affections are for Christ, I'm not going to want to live in the ways of the world. And I just chose drunkenness, y'all. You could have chosen any lustful pleasures. You want me to go there? I know you don't want me to. If we lust the way that the world lusts, we engage in sexual promiscuity the way that the world celebrates it, what does that mean for us? Scripture means there must have to be a distinctiveness, so I need to speed up. Okay. So we're supposed to be separate from, and in our case, we're also supposed to be separate to. And what we are called to be separate to is the person of Jesus Christ. To live as his holy and chosen possession. To abide in him, to be near him, to grow in our relationship with him. To live in light of his ethics, of his kingdom. So church, what I want to say here, as you flip from Nehemiah chapter 9 to chapter 10, is what you see 
is true confession always leads to renewed commitment. True confession always leads to renewed commitment. There, there is a sorrow over sin that doesn't lead to repentance, right? But true confession always leads to renewed commitment. And they want to renew their commitment with three specific areas. So I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes just kind of going through the rest of our text. There were three areas specifically to them that they knew we're out of alignment. We've got to recommit these three areas. And the first has to do with their romantic lives. It has to do with intermarriage. Look at verse 30. It says, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the lands or take their daughters for our sons. See, as they read and understood the word of God, they began to see that one of the primary areas of sin in their collective lives was the problem of intermarriage. The law of Moses was clear. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3. You shall not intermarry with the neighbors around you, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Now, why? Is this again, again about ethnic preservation? No, it's about religious purity. He says in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 7, they will turn away your sons from following me and begin to serve other gods. Church, this is what it boils down to, to us, because this still applies to us according to Paul and Corinthians. It means this, that the, the selection of your spouse is the most important relationship to you as it regards your nearness or your farness to Christ. That who you are married to will either serve to grow your intimacy with Jesus or begin to hinder your intimacy with Jesus, right? There's a true principle to that. Now, does that mean you better wait and find that perfect spouse? Good luck, okay? No, that's not what it means. But it does mean this. If you're single and you have a yearning to be married and you, you feel like God's asking you and calling you to be married, it means you need to be wise. Take some extreme ownership in the way that you explore that spouse because who your spouse is is going to play a massive role in your relationship to God. And in this area, they were, they were marrying people who worshipped other gods. They were marrying people who worshipped other gods. And that spouse was leading them astray from Yahweh to worship those other gods with them. Malachi chapter 2, Malachi was a prophet during the time of Nehemiah. And he says, Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How? How has he done this? How has he profaned this? Malachi says, he has married the daughters of foreign gods. They profaned the covenant. They were faithless because of their romantic lives. Now listen, what I know is that this subject also carries a lot of shame, doesn't it? Some of you sitting here today know the pain of the negative consequences that I'm referencing. You got married, and, and maybe neither of you were believers at that time. Maybe one of you was, and you, you held out hope. You just thought, mm, it, they're going to change. God's going to do a work. Something's going to happen. And years went by, and years went by, and that change never materialized. And it may have even led to divorce in your life. So what I want to do right now is be incredibly shepherding and sensitive to the reality that many of you have experienced. But there's also an invitation. If that's your story, there's an invitation for extreme ownership. It's easy to walk through something hard like that and go, yeah, it's all their fault. It's, it's God's fault for not changing that. Be careful. What many of you may need to do is go, you know what? I contributed to this thing. This, this D word called divorce, I contributed to this. And I need to own that and own it. Confess that sin unto the Lord. But I think probably what's most true for many who have walked through divorce, is that you actually just need to receive the forgiveness in which you've already confessed. 
right? We can do this with a lot of sins, but this is just one, man, that this situation that just carries so much shame is, is you regret walking through that. So you, you confess it every day. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. And you carry so much shame, and it's just over and over and over again. What I want to encourage you to do is actually trust the sufficiency of Christ's forgiveness for you. Because once you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of our sins. You don't need to obsess over your past. You don't need to continue to carry the shame of that regret. Own it. Press delete. Move on towards holiness. Because once you receive the forgiveness of Christ, you can actually now recommit your newfound singleness unto the Lord. You can recommit your relationship, your romantic life. If, if, if remarriage or whatever it is in, is in your future, you can own that, learn from those mistakes, and move forward. So I don't want you to live under such shame. Wow, that's fun, isn't it? But, y'all, we could talk about that for any sin, really. So many times we, we just obsess over our sin, right, over and over and over. We obsess over brokenness. But I just want to remind you, Christ isn't obsessing over your brokenness. He broke himself because he was obsessed over your life. Don't let your inability to receive his forgiveness rob you of the life that he purchased for you. So, recommit your romantic life. But for many of you, I know it doesn't have anything to do with marriage at all. So it's just, we're there. Just call it out. Any kind of sexual promiscuity, virtual or real, is not intended for you. It's not what God has for you. It's robbing you of your life, and you live in darkness. Y'all, there's not many sins like pornography that is as shameful and as secret as, as that one. What you need to do, I desperately plead with you, is turn the light on. Confess that unto the Lord. Receive the forgiveness that he has for you, and recommit your sexual purity unto the Lord, okay? That was fun, too, okay? But, man, it's true. These things that we, that we participate in, in the dark, we think they don't, if, if my spouse won't find out or if my friends won't find out, everything's going to be fine. But you know your heart is actually numb as it regards your relationship with God. Why? Your position hasn't changed, but your intimacy with God has because there's sin that's robbing you of that relationship. Confess that, own that, recommit to that. All right, first area was romantic lives. Let's keep going. The second area that was specific to them was their business lives. Verse 31. It says, and if the peoples of the lands bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the Sabbath year, the seventh year, and the exaction of every debt. All right, in summary, what this means is they're recommitting their business lives to the Lord. What they've been doing is working on the Sabbath. And let me just ask you logically, can you make more money working seven days a week or working six days a week? That's not a trick question. Seven days. What not working on the Sabbath is, is an exercise of trust, an exercise of faith. It's a desire to live separate, to say, I want to live in the economics of God's kingdom and trust Him for that seventh-day provision and not the economics of this world. It's a desire to live separate. What is it for you? When it comes to your business life, what is it that you need to take ownership of, that, that you need to recommit to? I'm talking whether you get paid for your job or not. My wife hasn't worked in 10 years. I can promise you, though, I don't want her job, okay? So I'm talking about your, whatever it is that you're putting your energy into unto the Lord. How do you need to recommit that to the Lord? Now, we don't live under the letter of the law as it regards the Sabbath, but I can promise you from personal experience, setting aside a day for the Lord is self-validating. 
That's a Dallas Willard quote when he talks about the disciplines. It's self-validating. You start practicing it, you begin to realize how flourishing it can become. It validates itself. But I can promise you this. I'm not a betting man, but if I were to bet, you start practicing the Sabbath. Just try this. You set aside one day where you're not going to work, you're not going to check email, you're not going to make that phone call. It will reveal work as an idol in your life. An idol. Church, we worship our work, don't we? I'm with you. We all do. We worship our work. It's all you can think about, showing that you love the Lord your work with all of your mind. It's all that impacts your emotions, your stress, your happiness, which shows that you love the Lord your work with all of your heart. It's what stresses you out. It's what exhausts you. It's what you makes you want to work for that next vacation. It shows that you worship the Lord your work with all of your strength. It's an idol. And church, I don't say these things to condemn you. I, I'm with you. This is, this is a text that preached to me this week. There's an old humor saying that's not funny at all about pastoral ministry. It says that pastors will get fired for breaking nine of the Ten Commandments, but promoted for breaking one of them. What's that one? Working on the Sabbath. If a pastor can be available 24-7, what's the congregation say? That's a good pastor. And when I'm available 24-7, am I giving myself unto the Lord? No. I'm actually worshiping my work. I'm finding my identity and how I can please everybody else instead of thinking about what it means to please the Lord. Church, this passage will preach to me, not just to you. So what does it look like for you? How can you recommit your business lives unto the Lord? And let me give you one final one. The last specific area of their recommitment had to do with their financial lives. Look at verse 32. I'm going to read all the way to verse 39. It says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly, the third part of the shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering, to bring it into the house of our God, according to our fathers' houses, as time appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of all of our sons of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions the fruit of every tree the wine and the oil to the priest to the chambers of the house of God and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levite to collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor and the priests the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. The Levite shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God and the chambers of the storehouse. The people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. Here, here's what it is. We will not neglect the house of our God. What they're recommitting to is they're giving. They're saying, we're, we're going to give you our finance. We're going to begin to live generously again in such a way that it supports the ministries of the house of God. And y'all, I just read it. The ministries were extravagant. I mean, verse 33 says the showbread, the regular offerings, the Sabbath cost, the feast, the sacrifices, everything. In essence, they're just saying, we're going to provide for it. We're going to give generously. And they, they gave two ways that they're going to give generously. First is for the first fruits. Did y'all see that all throughout that text? First fruits, firstborn, first fruits. What that means is they're going to give in a way that is risky. Here's what that means. If I give the first yield of my fields unto the Lord, what happens if it doesn't produce another yield? Oh, it means I must trust the Lord because he deserves the best and the first. 
not the last. When it regards your financial giving unto the church, unto nonprofits, unto any kind of church, when you give unto, hey, let me back up. You're not giving to this church. You're giving to God, okay? This is what this is. It's a triangle of giving. God's at the top. You give unto the God, God gives unto the church. The church gives back to God, God gives unto you, okay? All of your giving should be done unto the Lord. So take that image with you. But when you think about your giving unto the Lord, is it the first part of the month? Or do you wait and kind of see what's left over? Is it the first fruits or is it leftovers? They recommitted by giving of the first fruits. Secondly, they recommitted by giving of the tithe. I'm not going to go into depth here because I covered this in, in Nehemiah chapter 5 in a sermon that we titled Money Problems. If you want to hear that, you can find that online. But, but tithe means tenth. It's a word that means tenth. They were commanded by the law to give 10% of everything unto the Lord. Now, in the New Testament, and I said this when we talked about Nehemiah 5, I I don't see an an emphasis of 10% hard and fast rule for a New Testament believer, but I also don't see a dismissal of it. I see a benchmark for the believer, which is why our family chooses to give 10% baseline. I'd encourage you to do the same. You're like, well, if I give 10%, that means it's 10% less to live on. No, that's worldly economics. Test the Lord, is what Malachi says. Test him. See what happens. See what God will do for you when you begin to honor him with your financial giving. So let me land this plane for us. Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah 9, Nehemiah 10. It's really one big narrative. It happens over the course of one month. They sit underneath the word of God. And from the word of God, they get a picture of who God is. And from the word of God, they get a picture of who they are. And they see the chasm that exists between God and us. And they go, what can we do to bridge this gap? They own their sin and they recommit to the covenant. Okay, But I do not want you to think that it's all up to you. Okay, Because when it comes to extreme ownership, We have got to remember that Jesus, first and foremost, took extreme ownership to make this relationship between us and God possible to begin with, right? He, who knew no sin, became sin on your behalf so that you can now become the righteousness of God. And you did nothing to earn that. And In fact, he was righteous. You were wicked. You could go back through Nehemiah 9 and go, that's true for me. So how did God respond to your consistent sin? Oh, he just showed that he was ready to forgive. Merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love over and over and over again. And he's so rich in mercy that he demonstrated his love for us that even while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He took extreme ownership, extreme ownership of your sin so that you can take ownership of his righteousness. Church, how is that fair? It's not. It's the economics of his kingdom. It's driven by grace, not by fairness. So I just want to remind you as we conclude this morning of Christ's ownership. And the way that we're going to do that is actually by taking communion. So if you're serving the elements or passing those out, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and, and grabbing those and heading to your spot. And then John Ashley, if you wouldn't mind coming up and beginning to lead us through instrumentally. But that's really what I want us to think about as we take the bread, as we take the cup this morning, is to think about the extreme ownership symbolized in these symbols, Okay. When you take that bread, you have to remember Jesus took extreme ownership of your sin by tearing his body on your behalf. When you take that cup, you need to remember the extreme ownership he took by shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. So as they hand out the elements, take those elements, let John actually play, reflect on his extreme ownership. And, and I do want to remind you, if you're not a believer in Christ, 
Maybe you're still testing the waters. You're trying to figure out who this Jesus is. If you would, just respectfully let these elements kind of pass you by. We believe that these elements, this is an ordinance for the church, for those that are in Christ. But even as you sit there thinking about Jesus, I want you to think about all that he went through in his extreme ownership for us. So in a moment, I'll come back up. I'll lead us through this meal together. So hold on to that bread, hold on to that juice, and take a moment to reflect. is not obsessed with your sin, right? He, he died for your sin once, 
but then he was raised to life for your life. He, he came so that you may have life and life abundantly. He is obsessed with your life. He wants you to have life, and this is what these elements symbolize. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we take this together. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Go ahead and take the bread. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me go ahead and take the cup if you would go ahead and stand back up with me I'm going to pray for us and our team will come back up and lead us to a song of response father we're so grateful for the opportunity that we just had to proclaim your gospel to proclaim your death your burial in your resurrection, to be reminded that sin has separated us from you and that that chasm was so great we couldn't cross it on our own. So you took matters into your own hands. You crossed it on our behalf. You became a man and became sin for us so that we could experience the righteousness of God, so that we could be reconciled in Christ. And every time we take that bread and every time we take that cup, we get to join you in the ministry of reconciliation, pleading with others in this room, be reconciled to God. Father, thank you for that reconciliation. Thank you for that relationship that you made possible. I pray that as we seek to grow near you, that we would own our sin when needed, and we would own a recommitment towards relationship and covenant with you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.